All right, our guest this week, Andre Phillips, Mound West Tonka High School. Coach, really appreciate you coming on and joining the podcast today. Appreciate the invite, Brad. Excited to do it. I know you've listened to at least a handful of some of these, and you know the next question. I think you're prepared for it here is from our text conversation back and forth. So you're coaching Wikipedia page. Andre, where have you been? Where'd you play? And uh, what brought you to Mound West Tonka? Sure. Yeah, I think my uh, path is a little bit different than some of the other guests. I, I, I did play high school basketball. Um, I coached. I started in, in high school, 14 years old, so freshman, sophomore year, somewhere in there. Uh, started coaching at Tartan High School uh, in our youth program. Started coaching a fourth grade basketball team, which happened to be my brother's grade. Loved it. Uh, Coach K kind of took me under his wing and, and taught me some things and helped me understand. And, and from there, I was able to learn. Um, outside of high school, then I was a manager at the U of M. So Damien and I uh, share a background together. Our, our, our years were spent the same time overlapping in college along with some other local guys. So I was a manager at the U of M for three years under Coach Tubby Smith. Wonderful experience, a ton of learning items from, from Coach Smith and that level and the assistant coaches. From there, I was able to progress over to St. John's University up in Collegeville. Go Johnny's baby. Um, I was the JV coach uh, there for, for two years, learned under uh, legendary coach Jim Smith and, and also Pat McKenzie, who's the current head coach there, and uh, learned a ton. After that, I, I did one year at St. Cloud Tech as a B-Squad coach under Coach Mike Trevick, then moved back to the cities, did two years as the varsity assistant at Mount West Tonka, Took a year off to figure out my, my full-time job, what I wanted to do, found that, and then came back to coaching at Blake High School uh, for a year as a JV coach and spent the last three as the head coach at Mount West Tonk. So that is uh, the, the wiki in a nutshell. Coach Smith, Coach McKenzie over at St. John's. Obviously, I've had a lot of success. Uh, coach McKenzie's done a great job of uh, continuing the tradition that Coach Smith has uh, created, created at St. John's. So what are some big things that you learned from them uh, being in that close proximity with some really good D3 coaches that you apply to your coaching today? I think, uh, you know, number one from, from Coach Jim Smith, you don't make it almost 50 years as a head coach without building relationships and understanding how to care for people. Uh, he has been the biggest influence for me in coaching on how to treat people. And that resonates right away when you've got guys that are in their 60s, 50s, coming back uh, to St. John's every couple of times a year just to see him, just to see the program and be around. I think that is so, so special. And so everything from him is talking about building player relationships and people. Uh, Coach McKenzie, I mean, what do you, what do you say? He is a feisty competitor. He's a defensive first guy. He's extremely organized. Uh, you know, Pat is who he was as a player, as a coach. Um, you know, he, he wants to be first. He wants to be competitive, and he wants to find those edges uh, to win. And beyond that, the MIAC is just a phenomenal league, and building those relationships is outstanding. Uh, and we can get into it later. But the biggest thing is I don't think I've met a better run-and-jump coach than Coach Tower at, at St. Thomas when they did it back then with guys like Teddy Archer and John Nance and um, Tyler Nikolai. Uh, it's, a, it's a thing of beauty. Their run-and-jump would give any team fits no matter the level. So nobody probably taught it better. And so I studied a lot how they did it. 
Uh, and I've just, you know, built a ton of relationships throughout the MIAC and Reed OC was at Bethel and, and a lot of people know Reed now as well. And that's how we started our relationship. So uh, those two years, I wouldn't trade for anything with all the, the connections I've built. So did, when you were at St. John's, did they know that you were studying St. Thomas at the same time? Because that's like fighting words within, uh, within those two campuses. <laughs> the beauty of the MIAC is they share films. So if you want to pull up a team, you can, you can watch every single game that they've played. So they have an interconference sharing of film. And so it doesn't take much if you want to take the time during the day to just pull up another team. Once they've built three, four, five games, um, you know, you can, you can do that. And I don't think Coach Tower uh, saw me much of, a, much of a threat. He was an assistant back then, um, and, and Coach Fritz was the head coach. So I don't think he saw me, some young guy that's right out of college, as much of a threat. And if you know Coach Tower, uh, he's one of the most generous and genuine guys uh, that's willing to share. So maybe my allegiances don't run as deep because I didn't go to school there. So I just saw it as, <laughs> you know, not a, not a full-on rivalry. When we were in between the lines, heck yeah, we wanted to beat them. Uh, but, but outside of that, I was, I was there to build relationships, not closed doors. You mentioned you took a year off uh, after your two years as an assistant at Mount West Tonka to figure out what you, what you want to do professionally. So you work in the private sector. You're not in the schools like most of the coaches that we've talked with. And I think there's some definite uh, positives to that. And we talked with Coach McAllister from uh, South St. Paul, who's a lawyer, and how he can bring in some of the skills that he knows from the career uh, into his coaching and into helping educate his student athletes. And so what are some of the positives and then some of the challenges that you have found working in the private sector and then coaching in a public high school? For sure. You know, <clears throat> I, so I'm, I'm a manager, which I just see as the same thing as, you know, transitional skills. I, I manage a group of processors for U.S. Bank Home Mortgage, and um, I've been doing that for five years now, four years, five, five years now. And I think that those transferable skills are, are simply you're, you're coaching people. I'm coaching people all day long. And so I have a variety of people of different backgrounds that were born in different countries, speak different languages, uh, small towns, you know, big towns, some that work from home, some that work in the office. Uh, so it's been a pleasure to learn how to coach them and make them better and develop that, their skills. But the biggest things are you got to be adaptable. You got to be, you know, approachable. You got people have to feel comfortable coming to you with whatever they they have going on because just like student athletes, employees have things outside of work they want to do too. And at US Bank, we have the ultimate flexibility, and it's been a perfect fit with coaching. And uh, you know, I, I wouldn't trade my experiences for anything. So the beauty of it is, I get to work on those skills and polish those skills all the time uh, in, in coaching employees and coaching kids. The challenges are, I think, of what a lot of people have said, that there is a benefit to having someone in the school district or in the classroom every single day. I'm not in the building every single day, so my kids don't see me outside of the season all the time. So I have to work extra hard to be communicating with them. So I show up to their football games. I show up to their tennis matches, uh, their soccer matches, any of that stuff that's going on. So I'm a visual presence i'll bring my kids around so they get to know my family uh to practice as well because building those relationships is what's going to keep you around and it's going to allow your players to dig a little deeper with you so 
we have a group text. We're firing stuff in there all the time with each other. Um, you know, none of my staff actually is in the, is in the school building, which creates a big challenge for all of us. Now, a couple of them work in the community, but none of them work in the school in general. So what I've done is work extremely hard to build relationships with our principal, our superintendent, obviously our athletic director, our boosters, et cetera, to just be visible all the time. Now, luckily I live here. So, you know, I see people at the grocery store or when I go for a run each day or whatever it may be, I see people. And so it's visible, but it's not the same as, as having those conversations daily basis with your peers and other coaching staff. You mentioned going to out-of-season events and also your group text. What are some other ways that you are able to build those relationships uh, with your student-athletes? Sure. Yeah, you know, I think <clears throat> as a coach, it's kind of your job, if you want to be successful, to provide year-round opportunities to your kids. So uh, a lot of times we'll just open the gym in the off-season, and that way I have a chance to just touch base with them quick and roll the balls out and let them do what they need to do. Um, outside of that, we'll get creative. We'll have little events. There's a, there's Surfside beach down the road. We'll get together over there. We'll get together at a park. Uh, our kids are very, very close because we're a smaller community. So they're friends first and then teammates second. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, there's only a couple different watering holes around here. So I'll get together with some of the parents and grab lunch. Um, or grab a beer or whatever it may be just to just to touch base with them so I'm visible and they can pick my brain and I think sometimes that's a that can that can be a little dangerous because you're letting people in and, and being a little vulnerable but I think that they appreciate those personal relationships and I do too. Talk more about that. I think that is unique that you mentioned that you're able to, you're you're open and it was something that we I feel like in 2020 that door is closing where you know coaches are at times have to be even more standoffish and keep parents not at an arm's length, but like a mile miles length away at all times. <laughs> Cause you never know what the motivations are of parents. And I think that we see too many, um, there's too many horror stories where things get, you know, misconstrued and a coach ends up now getting into trouble or, um, rumors get spun around and now they're out of a job or out of a coaching job. And so what are some ways that you've been, you're still able to keep parents a little bit at arm's length, but also, letting them in and having that successful relationship where both of you care deeply about uh, their student athlete. Yeah, I think part of it is just my own approach to life. And, and, and as a, as a person, you know, I'm willing to share whatever you're willing to share. So if someone wants to cut open a vein with me, I'll probably do the same uh, because one of my strengths or one of the things I enjoy most is building new relationships. I, I love getting to know, new people that excites me that energizes me uh, I think there's always something to learn from from new relationships and you don't know everything in the moment you think you know everything uh, you're fooling yourself so it's been great to get to know parents in this community that are in different professions uh, so over the years I've let a few parents in that inner circle almost like I would my coaching staff and you know some people say well why would you do that you got to remember in our youth association, a lot of these parents coach these kids growing up. And so they do have a deeper connection to certain grades and their own kids uh, than would be the norm. We don't have, for the most part, paid positions in our youth traveling program. So it is parent-led. So if I'm not building those relationships with them and, and letting them in a little bit to what we do and how we do things, 
why are they going to trust me and do what I ask them to do on how I want them to coach these kids at our youth level? So I'm, I'm all for building those relationships. And so far it hasn't burned me. So as long as it doesn't burn me, I'll, I'll keep that process going. That's cool. That's good stuff. I, again, like I said, I feel like that door is just closing so much more where uh, parent, coaches are less likely to form that relationship with their parents. Cause at the end with the pair with hopefully with their own parents, but with their athletes, parents, at the end of the day, we're, we're all in this together. We all want their, the kids to be, if, if you're in it for the right reasons, right? We all want to win, right? That's why we're, yeah. we want to get into coaching to win. I like to win basketball games. It's more fun to win than lose. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, we have to, for, we're, we're trying to develop young men and by forming that relationship with those parents, I feel like that creates a, a culture where it's like, Hey, they might be pissed at you that you didn't play their kid that game, but when they know that you have that love and that um, care for their kid to be successful, I feel like those issues are easier or it's easier to get those, those issues washed away. For sure. We, you know, I keep my practices open. This might sound crazy, but I'll let parents attend our practices. Our practices are always open. They can come pull up a chair and sit down and watch. And, you know, they may not like everything on how we do it, but we're going to do it how we do it. And hopefully so far it's produced good, good enough results. Um, you know, it, it, as we continue to climb and, and hopefully set the bar a little higher year over year, uh, you know, and the intensity ramps up year over year, hopefully they understand there's a method to the madness a little bit. But I, we've always had an open practice, and I would say generally there are at least one to two parents at each one of our practices, depending on the level. So uh, we have guys that are – they're basketball junkies. They just want basketball, and they love it. And they'll pull up a chair, and they don't necessarily stay for the full two hours, but they'll stay for 45 minutes. And um, I'll go over, shake their hand, say hello. And uh, I'm, I'm totally okay with it. And once again, if it hasn't burned us yet, so I let it be. Let's talk defense. You mentioned Coach Tower at St. Thomas when he was an assistant coach back in the day uh, in the late 2000s. What are some of your teaching points in your run and jump defense? Yeah, so the first thing for us is we want to try to take away your best ball handler. Most high school teams have a guy that feels very comfortable being pressed or being pressured, whether it be uh, in, the, in the full court, half court, et cetera. They have a guy that they designate, hey, just get him the ball, right? I don't, I don't see a ton of teams running a super structured press break but they say, just get it to that guy. So we'll, we won't guard the inbounder and we'll try to double your best ball handler, keep the ball out of his hands. We want to force that next best guy to have to make decisions or to just put himself in an uncomfortable situation. So that's, that's really where it starts uh, is there. And if we can get it in your second best ball handlers, most teams don't have two great ball handlers. And if you do, um, you know, good for you, then you're probably a pretty good team if you can, if you can handle those situations. Um, so from there, obviously, traditional, you want to make them pick a side. Uh, for us, we don't mind if they want to go to their strong hand because we know once we cut them off, so the guy on the ball, his job is to get one turn. So if you're on the ball, you guard to your ability. That guy can't beat you off the dribble fully. Right. And if he does, it's got to be up the sideline because then we're limiting his options on what he can do with the basketball. So we say get one turn. And we've got a kid that's played for us for about, oh gosh, this will be his fifth year of varsity basketball upcoming this year. And he's, you know, and guys say, Oh, I don't know if I have a good enough ball, but you know, I'm ball defender. He's five seven 
and he's probably 140, 150 pounds, and he's one of the best on-ball defenders I've ever coached. The kid's just a pit bull, and we just say, your job's one turn, okay? So he's got to get one turn, and obviously we take then the, the next closest man opposite the basketball, and you're our, you're our trap guy or you're our gapper. you got to control that middle gap. So we don't want to get beat up the middle of the floor. So if the kid starts making hard dribbles up the sideline, we're going to send that guy free to go trap him on the sideline and everyone else is going to rotate. We're going to make sure that the guy on the ball side sideline did full deny. He, he, you cannot let the ball at the ball side sideline. It's the easiest pass. From there, we want to take away the next closest guy in the middle. And then we want to have one rim protector and we'll leave the guy that wants to throw it back right? Because of 10 seconds is our protector. And if you throw it back, we believe we can rotate enough to get another trap. But the gapper is most responsible for not allowing the ball at the middle. And that's really the secret to success. We call it an exchange. So if he starts driving up the middle and we're beat, the on-ball guys to beat, we'll literally just send him free, the opposite ball guy, and y'all exchange, exchange, and he'll leave his, and they're just switching. And now we're hoping that we're forcing that ball handler to change directions back to the sideline where we want him and we can get another trap and another rotation. So that's really, you know, in a nutshell, our, our basics. Now we'll do some other calls, you know, so if we're going 55, that's our, that's our basic run and jump. If we go uh, double fist, we'll trap the first pass on the inbounds and rotate out of there. If we call face, then we'll face guard to full deny the ball in. So then we take a guy off the uh, we take a guy off the inbounder and we put him around the three point line so nothing gets beat over the top. And we'll do that in late game situations or when we really need to try to steal a possessions uh, just to give a mix. But those are those are the three kind of variations. But typically it's just the the first one. That's similar to what we talked about uh, with Coach Bigler, that uh, podcast that came out on Monday when we talked about in the half court when you get beat is just keeping your feet moving and finding the next guy. So I like that exchange concept. How do you that? Uh, and I've talked to this with I think it was Dame uh, on the a, a while back. But how do you keep kids or how do you teach kids to keep their feet moving? Because I feel like so often and my guys are guilty we're a press team uh, as you've seen us play we're a press team and other teams just in general kids when they get beat their natural instinct is like oh and they like, oh, maybe put their head down or they hesitate sure how do you how do you teach kids to keep their feet moving and finding the next guy on defense so the way we drill this right we'll start off the beginning of the year and we just say hey we're going to run our one-on-one -on -one turn drill and it's just your old school you know one guy's got a ball and he's going side to side, you know, up the, up the floor and another guy's just turning his hips and moving his feet. So we talk about not crossing your feet. We talk about big steps, but then we transition it. So we'll go down the first time about 50%, just, you know, doing technique. And then, you know, we'll progress to, okay, we're going to go a hundred percent and you got to try to beat them. And we'll yell a lot of times, don't slide sprint. And I, and I listen to that podcast and that's a lot about what coach Bigler talked about. And, and that is key sprint. Don't, don't worry about that you got beat. Just recover because it's the recovery that's going to put pressure on a team. It's got to be relentless all the time where we will trap beyond half court. So if you dribble up the side, if you dribble up the middle and then all of a sudden you cross the half court line, you start going to the sideline, we'll go get you there because now you can't pass back. And now the floor is shortened, so we have to guard less space. And so we put more pressure, right, against really good teams. When we played with Konya, they have really good, you know, really good ball handlers, and they have a couple different guys. But you're hoping that you're wearing them out. And for us, our 
full court defense blends into our half court where we're, we switch a lot, one through four, one through five, and sometimes one through three, depending on how, depending on the matchups, whether we like them or not. And so that blend allows us to have, you know, other teams might see it as mismatches, but it allows us to have versatility to not worry about who is on who and when or where on the floor. It doesn't matter because we're going to end up switching some of these actions anyways, and we'll get back to the matchups we like. Uh, so for us, that's, that's the most important teaching points uh, of our run and jump, but recovery. I mean, it's all about recovery. So from the one-on-one turns, we'll go down the middle of the floor where they got to stay between the lane lines, and they'll play one-on-one, full court, all the way. And they'll go down and back so each guy gets a chance on on offense from there, we'll work into two on two so that you learn the exchanges and you learn the traps. Uh, and then we'll go straight to four on four. Three on three doesn't really make a difference. You're just adding the sideline guys. So we'll go four on four and then we'll add the rim protector last. And that's how we teach it. And we usually can teach it and be decent at it in a week, pretty solid at it after two weeks. And by the time we get to go play somebody else that doesn't know what we're doing, you know, most teams do a scrimmage. By the time we do that, we're able to fix a lot of the, the, the mistakes and it just kind of, it kind of rolls from there the rest of the year and we get better on it as the year goes and we'll tweak some things based on personnel. Are you in this every possession make or miss dead ball or do you, or do you mix it up? We're always dead ball. We're always on makes. Uh, I have not explored doing it off of misses. I, I want to take a look at what that looks like this year because we have different personnel than we had this past year where we might need to play a little more like you guys where we try to, you know, score 80, 90, because that's the mentality that my kids have um, that, I, that we're bringing up uh, this coming year. This group that I just had was more defensive first. So we were a little more conservative with the chances we took, um, but we wanted to keep pressure on you. I've never done it with makes. I'm interested uh, with that, obviously, you got to assess the risk-reward uh, for yourself as, as a team and, and figure out, is it worth it? So your conference and section, I know, I know your, uh, your conference is changing up here in the next year, but you have, uh, in your conference, if you look at some of your scores, and we, we've talked about this throughout the year, you have some teams that really try to slow the game down. And then in your section, you're playing, you have teams potentially like De La Salle, Benil, Waconia, uh, Orno, who might be just trying to exploit and get the advantage and score. So how do you work defensively knowing that throughout the year, you guys have a pretty diverse uh, opponent schedule and how they're going to attack your press. <laughs> it's uh, you know, as you mentioned with the two a schools, uh, we get some mismatches where they just don't have as many kids. So we can exploit a little bit more and take a few more chances because there's guys we're just, we're not afraid of shooting the basketball. But then when you get to the schools that are our size or at our level or better than our level, you have to take more calculated risks. And so I would say the difference is just determining how aggressive you want to be um, and then also determining who you're willing to get beat by, right? If you have five kids that can score double digits for you on the floor at any time, you're probably pretty good. So in those chances, we're probably going to take less risk in trapping. We're just going to try to wear out your main ball handler. And we hope in the second half that pays dividends, kind of like a boxer, you know, going to the body. We hope that, you know, you run out of wind and you make a couple mistakes that you normally wouldn't because you're tired. But if you don't have as many guys, as many, you know, 
players, we'll be a little more aggressive because we want to speed you up and we want you to make mistakes and we want to put you in uncomfortable situations. We want the guy that averages two and a half points per game to take 10 shots, you know, and, and let that fall where it may. So that's really the biggest, the biggest difference. The better the team with the more ball handlers, probably the less chances we're going to take and we're just going to wear them out um, because we play eight or nine guys. So a lot of teams at the, in our, in our section might play six, might play seven. So we hope that, and they're probably inevitably bigger than we are. We're, we're pretty small. So we hope that that pays dividends over the course of the game. That was 10, 10, 11, really good minutes on defense. So I would encourage you for those listening to run that back. Uh, Coach got some, gotten into some really good details on the run and jump rotations and where he wants that trap coming from uh, in the front end of that. So that was a good chunk of 10 minutes on run and jump defense. Uh, we'll transition here to offense. I know you're dribble drive based. Let's start with transition. Are you, as you mentioned last year, you're a, bit, a little more conservative, uh, kept the points down a little bit. This year you tend to get out and run. So maybe you don't have a great answer for this, but I want to talk about uh, maybe last year, maybe what you planned for this year, however you want to attack this question. How do you get your, how do you go from transition offense and then how does that flow into your dribble drive? Sure. <clears throat> so we always want to run, make, miss, we want the ball outlet. We want to go, we want to get the ball up the floor quickly. Uh, we want to flow for the most part into our general dribble drive uh, positions, right? Your, your typical slot, slot, corner, corner, and then big guy opposite ball. But what we'll do off of miss is uh, just because I've, you know, Coach Smith at, uh, at the U of M, Coach Tubby Smith always, you know, just ran drag ball screens. We like that action a lot because I think the biggest challenge that most people have in running dribble drive is how do you keep your post involved? Well, that's one way to get him involved is with ball screens. So we'll run just a drag screen and let him roll and play out of it. But the biggest things for us, no different, and, and this is, you know, Klinger's, Klinger's uh, you know, fast break methods, or at least were uh, when I was around him in, in high school and going through those deals, is we want to get the ball thrown up the sideline as quickly as possible if we can. We teach that kid to rip at baseline nine times out of ten. Now, if no one's guarding the middle, then he'll go ahead. But we try to teach him rip at baseline. If he gets cut off, his first eyes are opposite corner. Uh, well, I should say that his first eyes are front of rim. So we would teach our, our, our big to replace coach Bigler talked about, uh, you know, post teach him how to replace teach him banana cuts, teach him that stuff. We drill that stuff all the time. So uh, coach big, smallest Tonka, you, you can come over our bigs know what they're doing. So, uh, <laughs> so we'll teach our kids to go front of rim or if he dribbles middle, they'll go short corner. Right. And then we want him to swing step and finish. But, We'll teach our guard pitch ahead. That kid's got to rip it baseline hard. He's looking to score. He'll skip it opposite to the corner. If we can't, if he can't get it to the corner, we want that kid that threw it ahead to replace behind on that ball side wing so he has an outlet to throw it back. Um, and if the big is trailing the play, so if he gets a rebound and he can't rim run it, then that's when, when we throw it back, we want that kid that threw it back to clear opposite, and we want to go right into a drag ball screen right there. And it's, you know, he can just go ahead and, and play off of that. We teach our bigs most often to roll because we didn't have bigs that could shoot it from the outside that well. This year we'll be more perimeter based. So we might allow our bigs to pop a little bit more and step out and shoot it because I got one that can, that can really do so. And I want to implement, you know, something that you, you and Damien talked about a little bit 
biggest challenge in dribble drive is not a lot of screening. So I'd like to start more of our possessions early and often with some screening and then flow into dribble drive. So we might mix in some, some motion strong principles just to get some of that. Uh, Augsburg ran that when I was back in the Mayak with uh, Coach Grease, and they did a phenomenal job. They had a kid from LeSueur Henderson. I swear he was about 5'9", and the kid would just come off those staggers and just drill them. And he averaged like 14, 15 points a game. You know, what is this 5'9 kid doing just killing us? And so now that we're going to be a little more perimeter-oriented, I want to do that. But getting into the dribble drive after that, we're basically aligned how we want to do. You know, again, we've slot, slot, corner, corner. And uh, we've got our big below the rim. And for us, teaching dribble drive, you know, you can look at the Vance Wahlberg of the world, Greg Campy, um, Matt Lynch at, at uh, Lee Kester High School in Massachusetts does a great job in providing content. We've kind of blended all three of those ideas. But the biggest thing for us is teaching the vocabulary. Uh, so we have single word um, actions so each each action that we want to run is tied to a single word so we don't really mess around with plays um my plays are i can combo those vocabulary words and they'll run three or four different actions and then that's a play and you can mix and match them however you want as long as it makes sense obviously you don't want to flow together actions that don't work don't provide you know, double gaps, triple gaps, spacing, um, getting the shots you want. You know, if you're a dribble drive team, you probably hear the saying all the time, I like threes, but I love layups. And, and that's kind of our philosophy that we tell the kids quite often. Good stuff there. Uh, you talk about single word action. So without giving away all of your calls, uh, what are some of your, what is your most efficient action that you guys run? If you're like, you're not like you're going to a set or you're coming ATO where you're trying to get something where you need a bucket. Yeah. But it's like, you know, we're on a, we're on a five, an 05 run or a down 5 on a run here. We need a bucket. Ball's flowing. What's your go-to action, right? You think that consistently you're seeing maybe the most points per possession or where you're just having the most success. <laughs> it's going to sound like the most basic thing ever, but we just call it a, a loop fist. And all a loop fist is is a, is a slot to corner dribble handoff with a ball screen. And that action, for whatever reason, puts a lot of pressure on defenses to decide what they want to do. So a lot of people switch dribble handoffs. That's great. But if you switch that action, that initial dribble handoff, and then that kid's got to figure out how he's going to guard a ball screen, that action is so simple, but we always seem to get something out of it. What we get most often is the kid coming off the ball screen is able to turn the corner because keep in mind, our post is coming from opposite block. So that's a lot of ground for that big to cover. And we'll take that opposite slot guy. We'll interchange the backside. We'll flare the backside. Uh, we'll have him just cut through and get out of there. So he just cuts down the block and then back out to the same side corner. Uh, but that action opens up your double gaps. It gets, your big man involved. And a lot of times people use the ball side corner guy. We, we personally don't come off corner, but ball side corner. But a lot of times teams will use the ball side corner guy to protect the roll man. Well, then we would call that a kick where he'd throw it back to the guy that uh, handed it off to him. And that's, we love corner threes. We shot 40% from the left corner three and 46% from the right corner three. So that's a shot we would shoot 
um, if he kicks it back to that guy and, and knock it down. But that that action uh, is probably number one. Number two, again, it's going to sound so simple, but if you just want a quick touch for your big, uh, we'll call it a blur duck. A blur is just simply if I've got the ball in the right slot, the left slot guy is going to cross his face. Don't screen the guy because every ref's going to call it a moving screen if he touches him with a finger. So let him blur through and get that kid mixed up like he's trying to attack. And then the post will come and seal in the middle lane. We don't teach posting up on blocks. Uh, we'll put two feet in the lane. If they're going to call three seconds, go for it. I, I think we had one three-second call a year. And we'll just throw it over the top to our big right in the middle of the paint and, and tell them to finish it. You know, no dribble. Just catch it, finish it. Um, if teams collapse down, once again, you know, we've got our guys in the corners where we want them, and our bigs are pretty cerebral and, and throwing the ball out to the corner and knocking that shot down. But those are two Those are two that we run a lot. Um, switching. A lot of teams switch, especially because we play a lot of likes. Uh, we'll run a – similar to a loop fist, we'll call it a snap fist. So it's a slot-to-slot pass. And then the, the guy that receives it's going to throw it back. So as soon as he hears switch, he'll throw it back to the guy that handed it off to him. And then we'll bring the big up and just run a ball screen again to the baseline side. Coach Bigler talked about in his deal, you know, about having it's – a, it's a tough situation, a tough thing to guard. But, again, you know, it's a different angle. And that kid a lot of times is able to just turn the corner. For teams that don't come off the ball side corner, a lot of times he's got a free layup. Uh, and if he doesn't, the guy opposite corner is coming to help to protect the rim, right, to take a charge. And we teach different things in our in our one-on-one drills to avoid that charge. But, he, again, he's skipping that ball out to a corner. It's an inside-out pass. And that guy, again, has a knockdown three. Big part of dribble drive, obviously, is being able to finish at the rim. Uh, you mentioned you like threes, but uh, you like you, you love layups. And so what are some ways that you teach finishes? Because if you're going to be attacking the room, if you're not going to be a strict, you know, straight four out motion, uh, run stuff through the post type team, finishing at the rim is important. So what are some ways that you drill and teach finishes uh, to supplement what you're doing in, in your half court offense? There's two things I can say with that. Okay. Uh, number one, uh, you know, when I was a young coach, just finished, you know, just starting as coaching fifth, sixth graders, I tell Coach Klingsborn, I just can't get these kids to make layups. I don't understand why they can't make layups. He goes, Andre, you know, Coach K's voice, you got to love him. He's like, Andre, they're not making layups because you don't teach them how to make layups. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, you're right. I'm just assuming that they know how to make a layup. We don't practice layups. So every single day, you can ask any of my kids, what's the first drill we do every single day? Mic and drill. So every single day, we'll start off uh, after we stretch and do what we need to do and meet for two seconds. We get into Mikeins. Uh, so they'll do your regulars. They'll do your reverses. They'll do your longs. And then there's a couple other ones that, you know, I've seen some of these, these trainers doing uh, with these virtual workouts that I want to mix in. But every day, we'll do Mikeins. Then typically, we'll go right into one-on-o um ball handling but also finishes so for us uh we'll just we'll split up guys on on the right hand side so if you've got a full court you take six guys i don't know how many you guys practice when you take six guys and put them on the right hand side of the court put six guys on the other hoop on the right hand side of the court and we'll just do our one-on-one -on -one stuff and you're mixing different finishes inside hand jump stop finishes reverse pivot finishes 
we teach Euro steps because at this age, you know, a lot of kids can do them. And if they're going to do it, we're going to teach it. Uh, reverse finishes, floaters. And then we'll do the biggest secret, I think, is a lot of guys teach dribble driving. Kids panic and they pick the ball up. And if any of these guys, you listen to anybody, that's, that's just a death sentence. You're going to have a lot of turnovers. And we talk about don't throw the pick six. Uh, Coach Bigler, I smiled when he talked about, uh, you know, don't he gets a lot turnovers of touch- a touchdown. Turnovers are touchdowns. Yep. yep. We, co- we call it a pick six. So we talk about that pass where you drive in the paint, you're going to throw it back out. You better be darn sure. Don't throw the pick six because those are, those are game killers. Those are ways that you can lose games. So we turn those into Barclays. If a kid cuts you off, we call it a Barkley. Well, now you've, you've brought it inside. You got stuck. Now you turn your back to the player and you turn it into a post-up. And so that's every single day is Mikan's and then our one-on-o stuff. And then we'll mix in some other competitive stuff. Uh, but then the other pieces, you know, the blood series, the coach, coach Calipari uh, blood series uh, gets really, really competitive with kids. And, and that's, uh, that's fantastic. Last thing here, scouting reports. I know you uh, have mentioned it earlier in uh, preparing your kids, if it's defense, if you're switching one through three, one through four, one through five. And so what goes into your scouting reports? How do you, how, and then how much do you share? uh, And I guess I'll give a little background on this. So for us, when I first started, I don't know if I've mentioned this on a pod or not, uh, is that we used to do, you know, a page, two pages, matchups, right? This is who you're guarding, know your guy. And then part of it was when we started switching five, like, no matchups don't matter. And so how much do you go into the individual matchup and individual tendencies of each kid compared to what the team is looking to run that you're playing against? I will say this coach, coach W Smith said it very simply at the end of the day, basketball is a game of one-on-ones. So I care more about what are the individual tendencies then I care about what you're running because we switch. Now, if we stuck more screens, I care more about how we're going to defend certain actions. Uh, but because we switch, and we can vary how much, how aggressive we want to be on our switches. Do we want to jump out on certain actions and try to pick that pass? Does a team have a tendency to always reverse the basketball on a certain action? Um, or do we want to be more conservative because – you know, like Josh Horton said, if we were playing those guys, they're an incredible backdoor team. They teach it. So we need to be a little more conservative and we'll grind out a little bit longer possession. Or when we play Litchfield, same thing. They're an incredible backdoor team. So you just don't want to give that up. So you have to eat some minute, minute and a half possessions, even if it drives you nuts. Um, but for us, it, it is all it is almost all individual based. Uh, I want to take away first, obviously, like anybody else, your, your best player. Do we have a good matchup for that kid? And do we have enough versatility where we can switch off of that kid? Obviously, I don't want my 5'7 point guard guarding their 6'6 big, even if he only averages four points a game. I just don't want that. That's not a that's a minus for us every single time. Um, so for us, it's all about individuals. I want to know for posts, what shoulder does he use? Does he have a good does he have a go-to move? How well does he rebound? How far outside the paint can he shoot the basketball? Uh, and those are the things. Does he run well? You know, where does he get most of his scoring? And with huddle assist, if you're able to get a couple of games, you get a good idea on some tendencies. But I'm old school, uh, probably because of the coaches I've had. I like to live scout every team we play at least once. Uh, if we're going to play them in a section, I'll probably live scout them 
three or four times throughout the year. Uh, Brett, you know, I'm pretty committed. I drove up to your place to, to scout a, scout a team as well. So, um, I just, I like to, I like to live scout. I like to do those things because it's an opportunity to steal calls. If I can steal your calls, I think, you know, a lot of teams these days, if you're going to run a set, you run it at a timely situation. So I want to take that call away if we can and have a game plan for that. But really for us, it boils down to if we're switching, how many kids do I feel comfortable guarding that kid, uh, their best player? If it's one, we'll go one through four. If it's, you know, they have two studs that we just don't have good matchups for, we'll go one through three. Uh, the one through three is the hardest thing to do because you have to practice it and you have to talk about it and your kids have to communicate or you're, you're in deep doo-doo. Uh, but for us at the same time, we just talk about here's the individuals, here's what we want, here's the situations we want to put them in. And then really we just dive into here's how we can attack them offensively. Here's how we can be, you know, here's the kids that don't defend as well as others, or here's the matchups we want, or here's a kid that, you know, every time he sags off the ball and he's ball hunting because he wants to block shots. Uh, so when you see him, you know, get your eyes turned around and find the open guy. But for us, it's really about individuals. I want to take away your best player. I want to hold him under his average because if we can do that, we've probably got a chance to, to win. You hit on it a little bit about how much information you share with your guys. You mentioned uh, maybe it's huddle assists, live scouting, uh, that sort of thing. How many calls do you get into with your guys? Now, I know specifically you just talked player tendencies and what they're looking to do. You'll share, you'll share with your guys. But what about within a set or how many sets do you go into a game hoping your guys can recognize on the fly against a team? The one thing I don't want to get beat on, right? Uh, you know, again, I'm going to talk about my influences. Coach, Coach Klingsborn would tell me, you're an idiot if you get beat on special teams. So we call special teams underneath and sidelines and, and that sort of stuff. So you're an idiot if you get beat on those. And, and why does he say that? Well, because most teams don't have many of those plays and the easiest ones to scout because they're all quick hitters. So for us, we don't want to get beat on your special teams. If we're getting beat on your special teams, it's because one of my guys had a mental gaffe. Uh, as far as your sets go, um, maybe just the most common ones, uh, you know, take there's a team in our league uh, I see them all the time. So I know them like they're the back of my hand, but I don't want my players to know them because teams have different variations of what they're going to do. And if they know you're a switching team, they might do a little variation. And if you built it and slammed it in your kid's head, well, they're going to do this. They're going to make mistakes. So we don't get into your half court sets a ton. We show them, but we don't, we don't probably emphasize them enough. Um, because in a game, I'll yell it out. If you say, hey, I'm running, you know, tummy, and that's our play, and I know it's a dribble handoff cross screen into a high low, I'll just yell it out. And my kids know, hey, it's going to this kid. And so they'll do, they'll do a good job of talking through it and, and knowing it. But I don't, I don't want to build that all into their heads because I feel like then you're spending so much practice time on that when, to me, I want to be the best we can be and play the style that we want to play. I don't want to play the way they want to play, and I'm not concerned with what they're trying to run. You take away the individuals and go from there. Yeah, it all comes down to being the best version of yourself, like you alluded to, and focusing on what you're going to run. I know every coach has probably gotten into trouble. Like, I got that. I'm going to kill this scouting report. I got this. <laughs> and then you give it to your guys, and they're like – and they're just paralyzed, right? They're trying to, like, figure out – 
what you're in, especially, and that's part of the reason why we switched is that we started switching is it, it really takes the other team out of it a little bit. Now we got yep. our conference and our section, like there's good players and there's guys you got a game plan for. And we're playing an Aiden McDonald up in Hibby, right? Who we got to face him now for two more years. He came in as a seventh grader hitting volleyball line threes in our gym. <laughs> now he's only a sophomore. He's still got two years left. Uh, you know, we, we got to know, we, we need to know some tendencies to the best of our ability. You know, when a kid's a good kid's a few, you know, potential scholarship type kid like that, there's only so much you can try to take away. They got a lot of right. skill sets, but at the same time, you have to try to focus on, again, being the best version of yourself. And if you're going to switch, switch, if you're going to, you know, fight, fight, and then just kind of adjust accordingly. Um, us personally, we kind of focus on, is the guy catch and shoot or is the guy looking to drive? And that's really as far as we'll go too much with guys, unless it's a, you know, we just play, we play Peter Sumas and Hermantown uh, in our section final kids, you know, prefer to walk on going to Duluth kid that we've seen uh, for three years in our section, like really close with coach Fenske uh, it, up there. And uh, we know lots that we can go a little bit more deeper with a kid like that. We scoring 28 yep. a game. Uh, but yep. for the most part, does this kid shoot? Does he drive it? Uh, is he post? Like you said, which shoulder is he going? Uh, real quick, Coach, here, um, uh, we'll, we'll finish with this. You mentioned you have some plans for COVID-19 with your summer planning. Uh, what, are you, what are you willing to share, and what do you want to keep close to the vest because you don't want anyone uh, uh, stealing it from you? Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I think, number one, we've, we've you know, I'll, I'll plug him quickly just because him and I are so close and he's worked with our kids in the fall three seasons in a row. But uh, Reed, OC, and obviously Jared Berger, and they have a great app uh, for kids to use that's low cost and ability to do some stuff in the driveway. We've met as an athletic staff a couple weeks in a row now to determine what we can do, how can we abide by MDH guidelines. Sounds like our district at least is going to let us open up uh, and do some things in the activity center. So all of our summer programs run through community ed. So our school really doesn't have anything to do with it other than saying, Hey, you, you know, we're going to be just like the MSHSL. We're going to be the, the overseers. But we're not going to dictate everything that you can do. So on June 9, we're going to be able to get together. So we'll go three days a week, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, I've never found it effective to go Mondays and Fridays. That part of that might be our community, <laughs> right? We're, we're, we're a lake community. We're a cabin community. We're a, uh, kids travel, go see grandma, grandpa, whatever it may be, multi-sport, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we just don't go Mondays and Fridays. It's just the attendance has never been good anywhere I've been, not, not just here, but anywhere I've been, that attendance has been poor. So we go Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right in the morning and it works out beautifully. So we go seven to eight, then they go, they can go upstairs. So I don't know if they're going to have that this year, but in, in past years, the, the, the breakfast that's provided, uh, through the through the state program they can go upstairs grab breakfast and then they go straight to strength and conditioning um, and then if they have other sports they can do that later on but what we have planned you know i bought a thermometer so we have to check their temperature when they come in we have to ask them the, the mdh guideline questions uh when they come in and from there we're restricted to a one to nine ratio uh on the floor so um we have three gyms in our activity center which is phenomenal three hard courts um and so we'll have a one to nine ratio on their coach to player and you know kids have to bring their own basketball we have to make sure that you know they're bringing their own water bottle not sharing that we'll have hand sanitizer on site uh and then from there you know they can't they have to stay six feet apart so we're going to get creative with the ball handling drills 
and, and Coach Wahlberg uh, that teaches triple drive will, will tell you, you got to do your daily 45, whatever that is, your daily 45 of development skills. So that's really what our practices are going to be this summer since we can't do any contact stuff, um, at least for the month of June uh, is what I'm hearing. So that's really what it's going to look like for us. We have our community ed overseeing everything, but uh, we are fully ready to go and following the MDH guidelines. If you guys haven't looked into that, you know, shoot me a, a, an email, a DM, whatever, and I'll, I'll get you the link to that and what you have to at least follow. And we have to write up a description and send it and make sure the state approves it, et cetera. But um, I think it's great that we're going to be allowed that opportunity, at least in our community. There's going to be some, some challenges in, in keeping kids apart and protecting yourself. I'll wear a mask. Uh, when I'm in there and, and do those things. Um, obviously, I don't expect our kids while they're sweating and working out to do that, but uh, we'll recommend it uh, to them. But yeah, that's that's really what we're looking at from for COVID-related uh, workouts. Coach, always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I appreciate your insight. Obviously, you mentioned a unique situation as you didn't play in high school, but you got right into the coaching side of it. And then also your experience in the private sector. Really good stuff. Uh, thanks for coming on. Also, thanks for supporting and catching as many episodes as you can. You got it, Brett. Appreciate it. Thanks, man.